Let's pray together. Lord Christ, we thank you for these amazing passages of Scripture. Uh, Lord, challenging, shocking even. And we ask that this morning you would give us fresh eyes to see them and to see in them uh, the incredible love of God revealed to us in sending your Son. Uh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we ask for your presence now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you're with us at the beginning of the year, um, you'll remember that we spent the first few weeks of the Epiphany season uh, talking about the story of Abraham. We discussed how God used his one family to bless all the families of the earth. As you might imagine, it's pretty difficult to tell the story of Abraham in six weeks. And we got about halfway through the series when it suddenly dawned upon me. We're not going to have time to get to Genesis 22. The story which Lauren just read for us, and which I think is really the climax of Abraham's story. And so in my angst, I lobbied Joel and Britt and Sandy and Lucy. I said, guys, can't we just fit it in there? But their collective wisdom prevailed. Um, it, it was a wonderful story, but it, didn't, it wasn't necessary for the particular theme, the, the particular angle with which we were telling it during Epiphany. And so, you can imagine my surprise, <laughs> my laughter, when I looked to see what were the selected readings from the second Sunday in the season of Lent for the year 2024. In other words, what was the assigned text for today? And among those texts was Genesis 22. What's more, I, I realize that this passage actually fits better in the season of Lent than it did in the season of Epiphany. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. Um, This morning, we're going to reflect on this story, and we're going to read it alongside the other two selected passages from Romans 8 and Mark 8. So, uh, if you'd join me now in Genesis chapter 22, I forgot to write the page number, so if somebody sees it, just call it out. Page 16 in the Blue Bibles, thank you. Um, Let's begin, uh, of all places, in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall show you, shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. Right away in this passage, we're given a critically important detail. We're told that everything which is about to transpire is part of a bigger thing, a a test from God. God wants to see if there are limits to Abraham's faith, if there are limits to Abraham's obedience, if there are limits to the trust 
which he's already shown on multiple occasions to God, if there are limits to this. So, he instructs Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Now, it should also be noted that this is not the first time that Abraham has had to give up a son. Just a chapter before, in Genesis 21, we hear the story of God telling Abraham to send away Ishmael and Hagar. And it's because Abraham was obedient then that God can rightly call Isaac Abraham's only son. How much more will God ask from Abraham? Now, when I read these opening verses, I was reminded of some parallels in Genesis 12, the first story in which God calls Abraham to leave his homeland. And there's at least three things which occur in both stories. They seem to parallel one another, to mirror one another. First, God calls Abraham to relinquish control over his future. God gives then Abraham just enough detail to take the first couple steps. Right? In the one, it says, you go to the land that I will show you. In the other, it says, go to the mountain that I will tell you. Finally, Abraham demonstrates his faith in God with his quick response. Let's pick back up in verse 4. On the third day, probably something to that. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The the telling of this story is somewhat wooden, robotic. Normally I like things which are wooden, but in this case, it feels very flat. It feels void of emotion. We don't know what Abraham is feeling. We don't know what Abraham is thinking. And just a chapter before, in Genesis 21, when Abraham was instructed to send Ishmael away, we are told he was greatly distressed. So it's curious that there's very little detail about how he's feeling. But perhaps we get some important insight in the words which he speaks to his servants when he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, the ESV um, leaves things a little ambiguous here. And this is where I think Spanish grammar has the upper hand in representing the original Hebrew. Listen to those verbs. Seguiremos adelante. Adoraremos. Y regresaremos. All of those verbs end with the same ending. Emos. E-M-O-S. Now, I hope you came prepared for your Spanish one quiz. Is the ending emos used for singular or plural verbs? Muy bien. (laughs) Abraham may not know how, 
but he is convinced that Isaac will return with him. Let's go to verse 6. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Thanks to Joel, um, I can't stop seeing chiasms when I read scripture now. Um, a chiasm, in case you're not familiar, is uh, it's a literary device. It's a structure of an argument, a way of writing with structure in which um, ideas are paralleled in the beginning and the end. And then as you move towards the center, there's parallel ideas that go to the main idea. Um, I've put our slide up this way with the intention of helping you see the repetition. Um, this is, by the way, in the middle of the, our passage. You can see the first set of parallels in the italicized words, so they went, both of them, together. Then there's the underlined uh, section where both of them speak of the lamb for the burnt offering. And it comes together in the middle with the bolded text. Abraham's core conviction is this. Even though God is asking him to make the sacrifice, ultimately God will provide. This is a timeless truth that applies to us here and now today. And until we are convinced like Abraham that God will provide, we will not be able to follow him, to love him with all our hearts, minds, and souls. Join me in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The scene couldn't be more intense Abraham obeys God's confounding command right to the edge of the cliff. And the angel stays his hand not a moment too soon. For the third time in 11 verses, Abraham hears his name called and responds with three simple words. Here I am. In those words, we see openness, we see vulnerability, we see surrender. Abraham models for us the proper response when God calls out to us, both directly through his scripture and even through those we love like our beloved children. 
uh, in the case of Isaac, calling out his name. So having stayed his hand, the angel of the Lord continues. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. As was foreshadowed in verse 1, this was a test. By it, God learned through experience what he already knew. Abraham was a blessed man with open hands. He had surrendered his hope of the future to God. He trusted God's goodness even when he could not understand the calling which was given to him. Is, is this how others would describe us? And, and yet, the, the most important lesson of this story actually has nothing to do with Abraham. The story, more than anything, clarifies for us who God is. This is how our passage concludes. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Now, um, it's important historically to know something here. The readers of this first text would be familiar with a fact of that society in that time, that it was common for the gods of others to require child sacrifice. Um, one in particular is named Moloch as a Canaanite deity. Listen to God's strong rebuke of this practice from Jeremiah 32. This is God speaking. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I, had not, I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. God demonstrates in this scene what the true God is like. Unlike all of those false gods, those idols, God is not a God that consumes his people. When he asks us for a sacrifice, it's for our good. That he might give us life, that he might set us free. Ours is not a God who takes life but gives it. Our passages from Romans 8 and Mark 8 further clarify the character and nature of God. Listen again to Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? 
Y'all, the very same God who spared Abraham's son gave his own son up to be crucified. The promise of this passage that God will give us all things is not primarily about prosperity, but perseverance. Paul will go on to describe in this letter and others the great suffering which they experienced by being faithful and following God. Rather than shrinking back in self-protection, they followed God's lead and suffered great hardships. Why? Because they were convinced that God's love was greater still. Y'all, God has held nothing back from us. What are we holding back from him? In our gospel reading from Mark 8, Jesus leads by example and then invites us to follow. Just before this passage, he tells them, yes, you're right. I am the chosen one, the Messiah of God, come to save God's people. And yet, the telling of the story takes a turn that they did not anticipate. Maybe they, if they had been reading Isaiah, maybe they, they would have. But Jesus, God's beloved son, will be handed over to the authorities and killed. Another son will obey his father, except this time, God will not stay the hands of the executioners. But that is not the end of the story. Jesus asserts that on the third day, the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And predicting all of this, Jesus invites us to follow him. Listen to how the message translation puts it. Calling the crowds to join his disciples, he says, Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. My way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? Um, I'd like to close by reflecting on a metaphor. I've had a front row seat um, three times to the delivery of a baby. Um, I was mostly a spectator. I I did my best to support, but my role was somewhat limited. I, I instead got to behold this incredible thing. And I remember a conversation that Lauren and I had um, just a few weeks before Theo was born. We are having it with our doula, a birth coach. And she was explaining that the final stages of the birthing process involve surrender, a letting go of control, 
a letting go of the fact that um, the pain is there, an acceptance, a surrender. And I asked Lauren this week if she'd be willing to write a, a few words to reflect on this experience. And this is what she wrote. When I was preparing to give birth, I came across a phrase in a book. The only way out is through. Meaning the pain of labor ends when the baby arrives. So it must be endured up to that point. It helps to accept this reality and not fight against the important work that the woman's body is doing during labor. Accept pain as necessary and surrender, and surrender to the process. This works for life in general, too. Every one of us will suffer greatly in this life. But unending peace and joy are ours in heaven. But we're not there yet. The only way there is through the suffering of this world first. And Jesus is with us every step of the way. It should come as no surprise that immediately preceding the text we read from Romans chapter 8, that Paul likens waiting for God to come and restore the world and our bodies to birth pains. If this is true, and I believe it is, then we must learn to surrender. Not once, not twice, daily. So, let me ask it one more time. Church, what are you holding back from God? What is keeping you from entering fully into his loving embrace? The only way out is through. And God will provide. So, if you hear the voice of God today, calling you to trust and obey, let Abraham be your guide. And here I am your reply. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you not only inspire us, but you empower us to follow you, to trust you, to obey you, um, and to do what feels impossible to us. I ask Jesus that you would help us to be convinced of the fact that your love is greater still than any hardship we face to be convinced of the fact that you journey with us even when the road is hard, to be convinced of the fact that if you're calling us to trust you and to give something up which we hold dearly, Lord, that you do so for our good and that ultimately the thing which we need more than anything else, you, O oh God, will provide it. And so we thank you for this season of Lent, a time to remember our need for you, a time to renew our commitment to trust you, to obey you, and to follow you. And Jesus, we ask that you'd give us the strength to do that because we know we cannot do it on our own. Amen.